Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Businesses can benefit considerably when they commit to ethical AI. Such a commitment can enhance trust in your product or brand, drive consumer loyalty, and avoid negative experiences of your AI-enabled services. You have the power to influence the outcomes produced through AI and ensure everyone benefits from the transformative benefits this technology offers. We encourage you to apply the Australian AI ethics principles That's an Australian government video from 2019, taking the softly, softly approach to making sure businesses do the right thing with AI. Now, fast forward to today, and Australia's Labor government is pondering the stick approach over the carrot, with legislation on the cards for AI use by business. Unsurprisingly, Australia's big banks have asked for a carve-out from any new requirements, pointing to the reams of existing regulation they are already beholden to. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and in this episode, we ask, can we trust banks to do AI responsibly? The Australian government is in the middle of a review of AI use, fielding submissions in response to a paper it put out in June on government mechanisms to ensure AI is developed and used safely and responsibly. While many of Australia's Asian neighbours have taken a light-touch approach to regulating AI, all eyes are currently on the EU, with EU governments aiming to reach agreement on a new AI Act by the end of this year. The Act is expected to ensure that AI systems used in the EU are, quote, safe, transparent, traceable, non-discriminatory and environmentally friendly, end quote. To discuss the issue of transparency in AI, we spoke to University of New South Wales law professor Rob Nichols. And later in the show, we talked to Linda Stanievich, Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer for the Emerging Payments Association Asia, about ethics in bank AI and what banks need to do to make AI work ethically and commercially in their businesses. Rob is an Associate Professor in Regulation and Governance at the UNSW Business School and a Visiting Professional Fellow at UTS Sydney Law. He takes a close interest in the financial services sector and in particular the effects of technology in the regulatory space. Before moving to academia, he worked for the ACCC and he was also a partner at Gilbert and Tobin for 12 years. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Great to be here. I would love if you could give me a little Potter history and perhaps some fun anecdotes from your time with the ACCC. I think one of the uh, issues that I saw from the perspective of the ACCC is the increasing calls, and we hear it all of the time, for, well, self-regulation will solve this problem or 
let's draw up a code of conduct or a code of practice and you don't need to regulate us. It was quite interesting. Uh, both uh, Graham Samuel and Rod Sims had a pretty clear view on this and it, it uh, permeated through the ACCC and that is there is regulation and there is not regulation. And talking about self-regulation or self-regulatory codes is primarily talking about not regulation. Rob, I'd love to ask you about uh, the debate that's underway at the moment on to what extent AI should be regulated by governments. There's government consultation here in Australia underway right now on responsible AI. In your view, do individual countries need legislation? And isn't any legislation likely to be trumped by what big tech companies decide to do themselves in this space? I think that individual countries do need regulation, but the regulatory framework that applies to AI can be reflective of other regulation and legislation within the jurisdiction. So one of the real problems with regulating any sector which is characterised by dynamic efficiency, that is lots of change, is that there is a real risk in regulation of stifling innovation. Now, you can start to hear my experience working in other places where uh, the submission will start. This is an outrageous call for action that will stifle innovation. It's always a good opening line in any submission. But there is a balance to be got here. And it, the balance is, will the regulation serve to protect some group? And in that protection, has there been regulatory overreach and regulatory overreach causes problems and has the potential to actually stifle regulation. So in the Australian context, well, yes, I think there are some areas where we can improve the regulatory uh, position, but I also think we can rely on other things. So we have pretty good uh, laws in competition law with a good regulator, so that if a business is engages in misleading and deceptive conduct, then there is a potential for action for the de for damages that flow from that. If a business engages in misrepresentation, typically through advertising, then there are very substantial fines that can be imposed for that action. So rather than saying, for example, we will regulate you and here is the rule book for AI, actually saying, well, tell us what you're doing. And actually, if you tell us a lie, we're going to ping you. And we ping you as hard as we possibly can. So if you've told us a lie when it was a misrepresentation, that's narrower than misleading conduct. And we will go after you. Yeah, a few years ago, the banks um, were pinged quite drastically for selling advice, in some cases, to dead people. And really good advice, I'm sure it was too. I'm sure. Now, on the issue of ethics, banks and insurers around the world are starting to use AI in a number of different capacities, chatbots, loan decisioning, marketing, and all over the place. 
where do you think that their use of AI has the potential to cross a line into being irresponsible? I think the answer to that question is simple, which is where it leads to an outcome which would be worse than not using AI. And But it becomes more nuanced than that because for many businesses, using AI actually takes away a human involvement in a decision. Now, that could be good or bad. So if, for example, there is a great deal of range of decisions that are taken by insurance underwriters from, no, we're not going to offer cover through to, well, we're offering you cover at a standard rate and in between certain loadings for for different reasons. If the outcome of using an AI approach says, well, for one person who is in exactly similar uh, circumstances to another, you end up with the same outcome, that's that's a great thing. So if you use AI and there is no disadvantage, then that's positive. But if surely the, but surely AI in itself creates a, a a black and white scenario where you have to put in the parameters, which is if you are exactly the same person but in this suburb of a, ta- of a small town uh, in exactly the same circumstances as someone else in a small suburb, a suburb of a small town, but you don't get insurance, there could be, if a human was involved, they could say, well, look, you can both get insurance. But when an AI is involved, that's when you start drawing those lines. But so there are two things there. One is that the design needs to be um, designed for safety, so safety by design, which is a concept just like privacy by design. The second part is involving having a human in the loop, but not in the loop to say, well, actually, those two people, I wouldn't give insurance to person A, but I would to person B. If the AI system says, no, person A and person B are indistinguishable for the purpose of determining whether there should be cover, well, that's the right outcome. So you have all of the normal problems with applying AI, and and one of the biggest ones is bias. So actually, who is Uh, looking at the data that goes into the training of the AI, what weightings and loadings are put on, has the risk of putting the same human biases into the AI decisions as were there before. So particularly if more senior people are involved in the input of that data or the labelling of that data in machine language terms, that could reflect their biases. And if they tend to be older, more male, uh, more skewed to particular uh, groups, that could lead to a poor outcome. On the other hand, if you have, this is weird, but actually you have more junior people, so it makes it cheaper doing the work, who are going to be saying, well, I'm not going to actually bring any experience into this, I'm going to bring in our rules into this, that's more likely to lead to uh, an outcome which is going to provide better levels of equity. 
there's also worth thinking about how you might put such systems into uh, into banking. Again, if it's a, a loan determina- determination, you're not going to end up with the the risk that the person who's doing the yes no on a, a loan also is thinking about yes no for the bonus that I get for writing so many loans if you, if it's bonus oriented or I'm not going to meet my KPIs this quarter because I haven't written enough loans so career oriented it it might lead to outcomes that people actually aren't very happy with I didn't get a loan I'm sure I would have if it was a person doing it because they know which way their bread is buttered, and this AI simply doesn't, I think actually it's likely to lead to lower risk. And that lower risk profile isn't just a lower risk to the banks or, or, or financial institutions. It's actually a lower risk to the consumer as well in that they're not going to be taking on a loan that they can't service or where the risk of them being unable to service it in the event of a, a an interest rate rise or some other fluctuation is going to be problematic for them. Look, I'm pretty sure the only reason why my partner and I got a mortgage last year is because someone needed to uh, bump up their numbers. Um, Surely not, Rachel. Oh yes, uh, two sets of parental leave plus two uh, self-employed people is uh, not something an AI would approve of. That's for sure. You were talking about labelling of data and so on. And one, there's an issue here that I'm particularly interested in, and that is, for example, say in the health sector, so much data is based on young white men between the ages of sort of 20 and late 20s. And there is vanishingly little data on certain ethnic groups or women in certain ethnic groups and so on. Now, how do you combat that when you're looking at banking and making decisions about people's financial lives? Okay, so if you're going to be if you're going to build a machine learning system, the vast majority of the work that you do is not creating an algorithm; it's cleaning the data. And one of the important things, if you're going to be using the data to make decisions about a broad population, is that even if you've only got small amounts of data about certain groups, but those groups feature more prominently within the population as a whole, you have to weight that data up. That is, you when you're bringing in the data, you don't just say, ah, well, I've got 500,000 records of of white men between 20 and 35, and I've got 10,000 about other people, I'll throw those away. You actually have to say, all right, well, what proportion is that that group where I've got lots of data? And I will de-weight that data in order to reflect actual populations. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the actual population of the country it's more likely to be weighted towards the population of your customer base. It's got to be uh, ethnically appropriately mixed. It's got to be mixed appropriately by all genders, so uh, male, female, X. Um, It's got to be weighted, if it's useful, by, say, first language at home as a 
um, as an indicator of different groups that might have formed part of the overall population. These are all things that most uh, ethical approaches to AI say, well, you actually have to do that. And it's, it's a bit of work. It's a lot of work. But if you don't do it, then effectively you're going to be uh, subject to lots of complaints because your AI system won't be appropriate for the people that you're trying to sell to. So it's it's good business, it's good ethics. The two are often concurrent. And yet we don't know in Australia whether banks are actually building AI models that are going to look like this. And you've put forward an idea with the UNSW Allen's Hub which you say would promote more transparency in the use of AI. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I, and I should say I'm, I'm part of the Allen's Hub. I also am the director of the UNSW Business School Regulatory Laboratory, which was the uh, co-submitter for this one. So small plug, if you need regulatory assistance, come to us. One way of doing this is to have a requirement that model cards should be public. So uh, a model card is a human-readable document, very important that it is not just a machine-readable document, that provides some critical information about a machine learning model. Um, And it's used to help people understand how the model works, its limitations, and its potential biases. And at a minimum, it's got six elements. The first one is pretty simple. It's the model name and version. So it might be, say, ChatGPT, and it might be based on GPT-3 or GPT-4. So you know the name of the the product, and you also know how old it is and uh, has it changed over time. The second one is, is also very simple. It's the type of model. So model type, is it a, a neural network, a large language model, uh, a decision tree, a support vector machine, a whole right range of things. But it's pretty simple. What type of model is it? The third one is the model inputs and outputs. And all this does is to describe the types of data that the model can take as input and what it produces as output. So for a chatbot, takes as input, text that's entered um, on on a screen, and what does it do? It produces output data that's responsive to that text. They get a little bit more complex after this. So the last three are model training data, that is, what data was used to train the model, and that's quite useful to assess uh, how useful the model will be on different types of data. So if you've got a large language model that was trained on uh, the internet or anything on the internet that wasn't behind a paywall, you probably can guess from that that it's going to be dominated by information from uh, the US uh, rather than dominated by information from Australia. The fifth one is the model evaluation metrics. And this is how was the model evaluated? What what did you use to determine um, whether it was working well or working badly? 
So if you've trained a model to work really well on doing loan decisions, you couldn't expect it to be uh, fabulous at deciding insurance. So what was it originally used for? And the last one, which is probably the most important, is the known limitations and biases. So what are the biases of the model? What are the limitations of the model? And basically, that means that the person who's using the model can interpret the results and make some informed decisions about their use. Now, if you have a look at ChatGPT, Meta's Llama and Llama 2, uh, Google's Bard and its uh, other part of that, which is Palm 2, you will find they all have model cards. And those model cards are published. And if you look at the biases, you're going to be pretty shocked to find that the internet on which they were all trained is a pretty biased place. But they're all transparent. And it seems to me uh, it's a not unreasonable thing to ask that if a business is using an AI, if government, Commonwealth, state government is using an AI, they should publish the model card. So, for example, I'm playing with some models at the moment and I'm fine-tuning a Llama 2 model. I can write a model card that says, this model is based on Llama 2 and this is Llama 2's model card. The training data that I used for the fine-tuning is this and the effect on the model card will be A, B and C. So it's it, this is not a difficult or onerous task but it makes the business think. So if you publish a model card, well, you've told us what you're doing. And that better be true, because if it's not true, it's misleading or deceptive conduct uh, at best, or a misrepresentation at worst. So we don't end up with, circling back, we don't end up with uh, regulation, which is terribly difficult. We just say, you must put up your model card. And if you got your model card wrong, we'll do you. Do you think that kind of approach would need to be mandated since um, the uptake of voluntary code of conduct has been relatively poor? Yes, I, I, I voluntary code of conduct, the uptake's poor and they're not enforceable. So, yes, mandating... But that could be mandated either by a license condition. So uh, essentially for a bank, it could be, yes, if you're an authorised deposit-taking institution, when you use AI, you must uh, put up your model card so it becomes part of a, an ASIC regulatory guide. Um, you can start it off by a, a letter of expectation from the regulator saying, we expect that you'll do this, and to the extent it's not done, we'll be uh, putting up a, a regulatory guide, which will be what you have to do because it will be an enforceable guide um, if you don't actually solve the problem. So this is another way which says, all right, start off with a code of conduct, and if your code of conduct isn't adhered to, we're going to uh, mandate it on you. And this, that sort of, Codes first, mandate second is precisely what's being used by the uh, e-safety commissioner in respect of protection of 
uh, of safety online, which is to say, well, we gave you a chance to come up with some codes. We liked four of the six. We didn't like the other two, so we're going to make them. And by the way, the two we make will be enforceable, and we'll probably enforce the other four as well because you said you were comfortable with those. So that you have codes which are, are made by businesses and then become enforceable. And have you seen any companies that are on the front foot when it comes to being transparent about the use of AI um, in fintech and banking or elsewhere? Not in fintech or banking, but elsewhere, yes. And it's actually the biggest players. It's OpenAI, it's Amazon, it's Meta, it's Google. The major players that are doing this work are transparent and the rationale behind that is to make sure that their products are well understood, because if their products are well understood, the user uptake will be higher. So I, I would imagine that many fintechs that are using, uh, using AI approaches would be quite comfortable with providing a model card, because it actually reinforces two things. One, that they know exactly what they're doing with AI. Two, that they've got the transparency and the confidence in the product that they're developing using AI to publish the model card. It's essentially saying, yeah, we know what we're doing. To essentially be able to say, we have nothing to hide. You're Absolutely. safe here. We have nothing to hide. And, and why would you want to? I can't actually conceive of a fintech that would want to say, well, we're hiding this um, because actually the trust that they need to operate their business is enhanced by the publication of a model card rather than anything else. Thank you very much, Rob. You have been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and we'll be back after this short break. Do you want to be part of Breaking Banks Asia? Reach out to learn more about the opportunity to be featured in one of our shows with an audience across Asia of CEOs, CTOs, founders and opinion leaders. Breaking Banks Asia is where the forward-thinking conversations are happening about fintech and banking in Asia. Reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Breaking Banks Asia or go to www.provoke.fm. And we're back. Uh, my name is Linda Stanievich, and I'm currently the Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer for Emergent Payments Association Asia. Thank you very much, Linda, for joining us today. How did you fall into the area of banking, AI, and ethics? Yes, so my, my background is within different fields of technology. I'm an engineer to start off with. I started in innovation and telco for Ericsson, and then I moved to financial services, working with product development and technology innovation. And obviously, AI or analytics and data analytics is a big part of product development and innovation. And being from a mathematical background, I've always been interested in AI and the involvement of that field. Now, you were recently on a panel at Intersect. It's a fintech conference in Australia, where you were talking about AI and biases in fintech. What were some of the most interesting questions that came up? There was a lot of interesting questions I think we had on the panel, also debating what is ethical AI, uh, because that is quite a complex question. So 
obviously we all want to craft and create AI models um, that are ethical, but this domain is quite complex and also deeply rooted in some culture perspectives. Uh, so defining what ethical is can be different in different regions, which makes it a bit more complex. But I think from a generic perspective, uh, when applying AI models, it should be, you know, fair, transparent, you should have accountability, privacy and security. Those are some of the um, key parameters to take into consideration when you create your models. One of the examples we talked about on the panel was a job site have a lot of historical data that they can use, which provides job offers to executives. Now, historically, in a lot of countries, a lot of the executive roles have been held by male executives. And hence, the model, if you use the historical data, and which would be correct according to the data, it would service a much, much bigger proportion of these roles to men, because that was what has been in the past. While in the future, you want the model to service that to equally competent women. So that's that's just one example where you could have that difference in terms of what you view um, as being fair. And that, I guess, would also open you up to some risk of being accused of not being fair and offering unequal opportunities. You know, we were talking recently with a consultant who works with large financial institutions, and she said that right now a lot of AI work or anything that touches AI at banks mm-hmm. is being shunted into the risk department. And that means it's not being thought about holistically, which can still lead to that that same scenario, I guess, that you gave. I, I think in terms of the banks, and I think everyone is working on AI models. It is it is an interesting observation. And I think from my perspective, when I worked with technology and product innovation in the big banks here and in other corporations, it can be quite complex and overwhelming to include everyone in a new innovation project when it's still evolving and you're still working out the risk appetite in terms of what you want to do with the evolving solution, if that makes sense. That could be one one reason why it's put into the risk area for some of these uh, solutions. Another one, the risk exposure for this model could potentially pose banks a different reputational damage than it has in the past. Uh, So I think that's why they want to make sure that they are not providing models, for example, that would be biased or unfair. So an example could be if you have an AI credit assessment model, which is automated based on some historic data, which would be skewed to not give as much credit based on socioeconomic um, parameters in the area where you live. Using the data that, because you don't have enough data set for a certain group of people, or that model is not correct in that specific use case, but on the top level, it might be correct. Mm-hmm. So, so that makes it a higher risk in terms of potential discrimination or scrutiny. Having said that, I think it depends on what you're looking to do. So always obviously start with the strategy in terms of 
have a holistic AI strategy for your organization, whether you're a financial institution or another corporation. And then, you, you know, you break that down into the areas where it fits in. So if it is a wide span across the organization, well, then I would have cross-functional team in that AI team to, to make sure that you get the input from those important areas that touch on the model. Where do you think that the use of AI in banks could be considered irresponsible? It's a very good question. I think it's a very open-ended question as well. So I think it has to go back to any other type of use of automation or engagement within financial services. You have to follow the regulations and guidelines uh, in place, regardless if the execution of the service is done by an AI or an automated phone service or an online platform, the institution is responsible for providing a financially responsible service. So let's talk about guardrails in that respect, because banks are not angels. In Australia, the Royal Commission in 2017 showed some incredibly egregious behaviour across the board, Mm. and this happens in every country. So in terms of guardrails, the University of New South Wales Regulatory Lab has suggested as part of the government's inquiry into responsible Mm. AI that companies including banks, publish their model Mm. cards, which would make the use of their AI more transparent. Now, big tech companies already do this, Mm. so we can see how their AI has been trained. Do you think this is a good idea? What else, do you think anything else needs to be put in place to add a few more guardrails? I think it's good to have guidelines. And I mean, model cards are available, as you say, for like Google, Facebook, Amazon, IBM, publish some of their AI systems, um, not all of them. And I'm advocacy for transparency towards your customers and stakeholders. Uh, And I think that's excellent. And you can show, you know, how your model works, what, how it was trained and what data and what potential, you know, biases or uh, risks in the model. But it's also some challenge with that as well. It can be quite difficult to explain to non-experts how the model and what, what significance it has to understand uh, the, the whole model and how it works. And I guess if you publish the models, it can easier be reproduced and used which is good because other people can do it, but it also poses a potential risk for um, fraud attacks and those things that they understand how your AI work and then hack into it. So it's it's a dual card. I don't think it's an easy one to answer. In terms of regulation, I think guidelines is good and model cards can be very useful. But in terms of enforcing, I'm not um, for enforcing. I think the current laws that we have in place, consumer laws, uh, et cetera, they should guide regardless of what technology is being used. So I'm not sure it's the best path to kind of regulate AI because it's still such an evolving field and we don't want to stifle innovation. And I think any case should be able to 
uh, be incorporated in the current laws. Yeah, and there's a lot of chat at the moment about how the existing privacy consumer and so on laws are actually, as you say, AI is just another technology. It's kind of up to regulators to ensure that organisations remember that it's just another technology and it's not this amazing thing that they can go out and do um, yeah, exactly. Unusual it, things or things that are outside. Yeah, exactly. And if you if you lock that in, that won't be valid in six or eighteen months. So so it, it would be very difficult. Let's talk about payments. This is your industry. What yes. do you think that AI offers the payments industry, given that your se- sector has probably been the most innovative in financial services over the mm. last decade? Yes, I think there's a tremendous opportunities utilizing analytics and AI in payments. One big area is obviously improved fraud detection and prevention. So that's when you use it to develop systems that can identify and flag suspicious transactions. This is a, a key area, obviously, for payments and streamlining payments processing as well. Uh, You know, reconciliation of data sets, those type of things um, can be automated better with AI. And obviously, personalized customer experience where you can analyze a lot of data behavior uh, and data sets, trends and patterns to understand when, when you should engage with customers, better touch points and better experiences. Uh, so I think those three areas are are really key and a lot of innovation are happening in those areas. Fourthly, I would say security as well, obviously, to protect payment systems from attack. I think probably one of the barrier of some sort could be when we talk more about uh, sharing of data sets and across border transactions and those those types of things where, where we would benefit of sharing more data parameter between countries to, for example, identified fraud behavior and such. That's something that's still being worked on. And EPAA, uh, we work with policy and advocacy a lot around these type of areas to influence how regulation and policy can change and shift to make um, those cross-border payments, you know, safer, secure and more data-rich. And that would also open up a lot of more collaboration, I think, with uh, AI if we could share data, which which has a whole heaps of other constraints and complexity, obviously, data laws. Do you think national legislation is holding that back right now? Not necessarily. It can also be the institutions themselves. So, for example, if you're a bank and sit on a lot of data, you know, you can tokenize data so it is unidentified and like you can't identify, you know, connected with a person and and things like that. And I know there have been cross-industry data sharing, which has been very successful. I know a bank and a telco and a data company, I don't mention the names, but they did that very successfully. But it's still in this evolving stage. And there's also a lot of concern about not being ethical or not doing it the right way, which might hinder people to do the collaboration while there is methods of, um, as I said, tokenize and making data unidentified so you can do things together. So I'm not sure what's what's holding people back. I think it is those like 
scared of actually making mistakes. That would be a big reputational risk. And obviously making sure to follow the laws in that country. I think it's very interesting because we launched an award program this year for payments, innovation and excellence. And obviously having that one of the categories was AI, you know, best AI usage in payments. You would not believe it. We received, I think, 80, 90 percent less entries in that category than every other category, which is super surprising because we know everyone is working with AI solutions. So when we asked some of our customers, our members and, and, you know, people around that we know work with models, they just said, well, we're still working on it. It's still evolving. We're not ready to show it. Being scared of being scrutinized. So I think it's still in that evolving phase where people hold their models, test it, test it, test it until they feel more secure in terms of sharing it to the world. You could even say that's part of the transparency problem is that no one quite is comfortable enough sharing it. Exactly. And, and, And it's back to this data as well. And also with also in terms of fraud, I know this as well, having worked for some of the big banks, it's beneficial to share those data because you can help another branch or another branch. But sometimes you don't want to share that because that poses uh, reputational risks. So you rather hide it and deal with it, make sure that it's dealt with. I, I think that collaboration really needs to happen between corporations in the industry and also across different industries. That That is the key to make it really successful in terms of, I think, fraud, security, AI, data usage in general. Thank you very much for joining us, Linda. I've really, really enjoyed having you on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was lovely meeting you, ladies. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.